especially the entertainment news, you know that Avengers Endgame is breaking every record. Uh, opening weekend, I believe 320 million or some crazy number like that. That's in the US. Worldwide, I think it was 1.2 billion the opening weekend. That's nuts. Um, I haven't seen it, so no spoiler alerts. I, I, I can't tell you anything about it beyond what I can um, pull out of the title, which actually is quite a bit. There's been a series of Avenger movies. I, I don't know the exact number, but it's a lot. But now the subtitle to this one is Endgame. And I think what that means, I think we, we can rightly infer what that means is that the story's coming to an end. All good stories come to an end. Stories have a beginning and a middle and an end. They have a plot, they have character, they have character development, they have conflict, they have heroes, they have villains. But if you don't have an end, you're not telling a story, you're just rambling. There's a story being told. And apparently the people that, that own that franchise for Marvel Comics have said, we think it's time to, to kind of start wrapping up this story, no matter how profitable it is. We'll see if they hold to that, or if there's Endgame Part 2. Um, it's not just Marvel superheroes that have an endgame to their story, but God has an endgame to his story. Not in the ultimate sense, eternity has no end, but in the sense that this age comes to an end. Uh, we will not always be just as we are right now, but there is an end of the age that's coming. Uh, and in that end game as well, just like in the movies, buildings are going to come crashing down. Not because of computer-generated graphics, but they're going to come down in reality. We know that because Jesus tells his disciples that. In Matthew 24, they're by the temple, and uh, the disciples point out something about the buildings. We're not told what. They just kind of note some of the buildings. And Jesus uses that as an opportunity to tell them this in Matthew 24, 2. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's Jesus' warning that there is a real end game coming to what we call history. We're not stuck in an endless loop, one sequel after another with no resolution. Resolution's coming. The movie will come to an end, and we will transition into another better reality. The, in, the, the disciples understand this. They don't question Jesus. They don't say, are you sure? They, they believe him. But then they ask him two questions, very reasonable questions in my book. Verse 3 of Matthew 24, tell us, when will these things be? That's the first question. And what will be the sign of your coming? and of the end of the age? That's the second question. When and what will be the signs? That's the order they ask them in, but Jesus answers them in reverse order. And he spends a bit over half a chapter in Matthew 24 saying what the signs will be. Gives them a lot and says, don't be deceived. There's going to be people come along and say, there he is or there he is. Don't listen to them. It's an extended teaching. We're not going to look at it this morning. Just background for what we will look at. Um, so he answers the second question, about a half a chapter. Then he goes back to the first question, and he says, as far as when will these things be, and he says, I don't know. Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So he answers, what will the signs be, with some detail, he says, I can't answer when it's going to come, 
then he spends a chapter and a half, seven illustrations, answering a question they never asked. How should we wait? What does it look like to wait for you in faith for a time that we know is coming, but we don't know when it's coming? It's interesting that the longest answer comes to a question nobody asked, which tells us maybe we don't always ask the right questions. I've been told, and I think it's good counsel, look at what Jesus answers, look at what he says, and then work backwards to what you should have asked. It's not a bad way to approach it. That's what I want us to do this morning. He answers with seven illustrations. That's a lot of material to cover, but it's in your bulletin on the back, one through seven. We're going to look at each illustration and make essentially just one point from each illustration. That's a lot to do in one message. It's not a method that I would recommend that any of us, especially me, do very often, but every now and then, that overview where you try to look at something broadly and not necessarily with great depth is a good thing to do. We have a saying for it in English, don't miss the forest for the trees. There are seven individual trees here, and each one is interesting, each one is worthy of study, but together they comprise a little mini forest that Jesus gives to the disciples. I, I read it, and I read it slowly, as I would have imagined Jesus speaking to them. It takes about six minutes about six minutes giving them seven illustrations of how they should wait while they wait for him to return. And that's, that's the title of the message. That's the reason why I titled what I did, While We Wait. What do we do while we wait? Well, Jesus begins to answer the question in Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The illustration of the unpreparedness of the people in Noah's day is meant to be a warning. Don't be lulled into complacency. Don't be lulled into denial of some huge cataclysmic coming event because life in the moment seems just boringly normal. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate when he said they were eating and drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage. This is just normal life. I went to a wedding yesterday. and We ate and drank and people were given in marriage. We covered it all. Very, very normal Saturday in South Florida. People that mistake the normalcy of any given moment to mean maybe he's not coming or maybe he's not coming for a long time are the foolish ones. But rather than make the point one that says don't be foolish, let's make it a positive point from number one here and just say faithful servants wait with certainty. It may look normal, it may look dull, it may seem as ordinary as you could possibly make it. You're not seeing any signs, you're, you're not seeing any stones tum tumbling down from the temple. And he comes, just like in the days of Noah. There's only eight people on the ark. The rest of the people ignore it all, pretend as though nothing is happening, probably with sincerity. 
probably really believe nothing is happening. And they are caught unaware, and it is too late. So faithful servants wait with certainty of Christ's return, though they don't know if it's even going to be in their lifetime. It is certain. The second illustration for how we should wait begins in verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, just like the previous illustration of the days of Noah, the times here seem pretty mundane. Guys are out in the field working, harvesting. Women are working at the mill, grinding some flour for dinner. Uh, It's ordinary. There's no ominous, it's going to be here any minute. Did you see the sign? This is ordinary life. They're just doing their tasks. And while this illustration echoes the surprise that's in that first illustration with Noah where it says, stay awake, you don't know the day, it adds something else that's easy to miss but is a clear warning. Two men in the field is not a large enterprise. It's not what you see in the book of Ruth where the wealthy landowner Boaz hires a whole bunch of people to harvest his fields. Two men in the field is a family. That's a father's son or two brothers. Two women at the mill, they're not the ones walking a, a mule around or an oxen around grinding the big thing. That was men's work. No, two women at the mill is the small mill, the hand mill that the household would have had. This is a mother-daughter, maybe two sisters. One is taken and one is left. That's a whole nother level of warning. Why does Jesus give it? Well, you could read the first illustration, the the illustration of Noah, and say, all you've got to do is be in the right family. Because Noah's entire family made it onto the boat. Be part of the right family. Be part of the right church. Know that that mom or dad have a sincere, close walk with the Lord. Just be part of that, and you'll be okay. No. It's one family. One is taken, and one is left. And from that, I draw this second point. Faithful servants wait with genuine faith. They know they don't get to ride the coattails of another person's faith. They don't get to claim, I'm in the right church, the right denomination, the right family, the right country, the right anything, except the right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. They get it. It's a hard text. I come from a large family. I have five sisters, so I've got a lot of nephews and nieces and a lot of extended family. A lot of them don't believe. To hear that one will be taken and one left hits home. Probably hits home with most of you as well. It's meant to hit home. It's meant to wake us up and care and know. The third illustration of how we should wait begins in verse 43. But know this, that that if the master of the house had known in what part of the and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
This illustration, I think, is supposed to be a bit shocking to us. I mean, Jesus portrays himself and says, I'm just like a thief. So we have to be careful with analogy and careful with illustration, careful with parables. How is he like a thief? Well, he's not like a thief because he comes to steal. He's like a thief because he gives no notice of his coming. He's trying to get your attention. He's told you two illustrations now. Noah, a family enterprise in the field. Only a few got on the ark. One was taken, one was left. You don't know the day or the hour. You need to stay awake. And just in case you're missing it, he says, you should think of me like a thief. I ought to get your attention. How is he like a thief? Well, does a thief call you up and say, I'm coming Tuesday, 1 in the morning? If he did, nobody would ever get robbed. But we get robbed, which is his entire point. We get robbed because we don't know when the thief is coming. Jesus will give you exactly the same notice that the thief gives you. That's his point, which is no notice. He is coming at a day or an hour that we do not know. These are hard warnings, but they're loving warnings to people who think, I don't need to get in the ark. It's enough to be a part of the right church. I won't be surprised by the thief. Jesus just says, wrong, wrong, wrong. To those who are inclined to think in these ways, Jesus says, you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But other than being alert, other than taking the warnings that we will not know the day or the hour seriously, what does it actually look like to wait in readiness? Okay, I'm, I'm awake, Jesus. I get it that I'm not going to know the day or the hour. I get it that I need to wait in readiness. What do I do while I wait? What does that look like? Well, the next four illustrations, Jesus kind of transfers from similes where this will be like the days of Noah or this will be like two people working in a field and begins to tell more extended, in-depth stories and parables to develop what it is that a faithful servant should be doing while they wait? How, how do you put some flesh on the bones of that particular admonition? Starting in Matthew 24, 45, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, do you, do you hear the time thing, the denial? I, I can know when he's coming, and it's no time soon. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eat and drinks with, with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and will put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The element of surprise carries over from those previous three illustrations, but now we've actually got something that we are to do. Are you a servant of God? Do you have a master? Then feed his fellow servants. Give them their food in due time. That's a pretty broad statement, and, and you're going to have to discover for yourself what that looks like. With, with your opportunities, your abilities, your gifts, what does it look like to feed your fellow servants? But make no mistake, that's the illustration. While you wait, you care for those 
around you. Blessed, and this is the first illustration, by the way, that has an explicit reward associated with it. Verse 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. There are wicked servants who are part of the master's household. There are the ones who say, my master is delayed. They are the ones who reject the teachings that he's just given, one, two, three, I am coming, be ready, you won't know the hour. Yeah, he's not coming for a long time. That's an absolute rejection of the clear teaching of Jesus Christ. They push it aside and apparently think they can get away with negligent and sometimes even horrible behavior and then supposedly clean up their act before that long delay comes to an end. And they're wrong. It doesn't work that way. Absent the reality of the sudden and the surprising return of the master, the hearts of some will be given to wickedness that they might otherwise be guarded from. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm understanding that Jesus is coming back at a time that you do not know is not the beginning and the end of faithfulness. There is much, much more to what a faithful servant does and how a faithful servant thinks. But there's not less. It's a kindness of Jesus to say, I know your heart. I know how easy it is to be slothful. I know how easy it is to be lazy. I know how easy it is to put things off. I don't want you to do that. I want to be able to come and give you reward. And to that end, I'm going to warn you and say, you don't, you don't know the day I'm coming, so be ready at any given moment. So number four, faithful servants wait as those who will soon be held accountable. It's going to happen. Who have been given tasks by our Lord. We don't know when he's going to return. We know he will return, and he's going to say, what have you been doing? And he'll know. One more thing before we move on from that. This is important. The answer of the faithful servant is not primarily, I stayed out of trouble. I didn't beat my, my fellow servants like that guy did. The faithful servant is going to be able to say, I did what you asked. I gave them their food in due time. And the point is, faithful servants are not defined primarily by what they don't do, but by what they do not enough to say, I didn't do anything wrong. We're going to see a parable that makes that point very clearly in just a moment. Jesus is looking for those people who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and if that means feeding their fellow servants in some fashion or another, they do it. That's four. We have three more to go. Five through seven are all in Matthew 25. They're somewhat long, but thankfully they're probably some of the most familiar parables in all of scripture. I think those of you that have any familiarity with the Bible will recognize them. Um, for those of you that these might be new to, uh, bear with me. I will give you synopsises of them. And then this afternoon, Matthew 25 is, is your reading assignment if you so choose. There's three parables. One centers on ten virgins. One centers on the giving of talents. And the third centers on sheep and goats. And I will summarize them in the interest of time. 
The parable that begins Matthew 25 tells us of ten virgins. There are five wise and there are five foolish. But they're all doing exactly the same thing. They're all waiting for the return of the bridegroom. The bridegroom is Jesus Christ, and we know that because all four Gospels introduce him as the bridegroom. It's not an uncommon term. So here's ten women portrayed as virgins, five wise, five foolish, all waiting for the bridegroom. What is this a picture of? It's a picture of the visible church. Jesus tells a lot of stories, whether it's wheat and tares, whether it's different soils, that says in any given church you're going to have people and some number of them are going to be genuinely converted. They're going to have a genuine love for God, genuine faith in Christ, and some, knowingly or unknowingly, are not there. There's wise virgins, there's foolish virgins. And some things that we need to note as we we consider them is they all have lamps. These virgins all have the same exact small lamp. Some translations might say torches. I actually like torches better, but we'll stick with lamps for right now. Um, What's the lamp in this parable? I think the lamp really is their life. It's the visible things that you can see about them. They gather to wait for the bridegroom. They gather with God's people. You can look at them and say, they're a Christian, right? They appear to be. They've all got a lamp. Well, they not only all have lamps, they all have at least some oil. All of them are able to light that lamp for a period of time and give a little bit of light for some period of time. But as the parable develops and the, and the bridegroom is delayed, there, there's that time element again. He's not coming when you think he's going to come. Some of their lamps begin to flicker and go out. What's Jesus telling us in this parable? What's the oil? Most commentators say, and I think they're right, the oil is the Holy Spirit. Even unconverted people have the influence of the Holy Spirit in their life, especially if they're around genuine believers. There will be an influence on how they live and how they talk and what they do, but it's just a little bit of oil, and it doesn't last very long. Where genuine believers, filled with the Holy Spirit, their oil doesn't run out. And so when it actually comes time, when the rubber meets the road, when the bridegroom returns, and it's time to figure out who goes with him into the feast, it's those who have oil, those who actually have the Holy Spirit. Two more points from this parable before we sum that particular one up. That means that each individual, each individual needs enough of the Holy Spirit. There needs to be enough reality in their relationship with God through the Holy Spirit to endure to the end. It's like the parable of the soils. Um, Shallow soil, throw a seed on it, springs up right away. And then what happens? You know what happens. Gets choked out by weeds or the sun beats down on it. It doesn't produce fruit. Looks good for a while. In the same way the lamp looks good for a while. But just like there's not enough soil for the plant, there's not enough oil for the lamp. And it's meant to say that there's, there's some good influences, 
There's some wonderful things that the Spirit does even in unconverted people, but don't count on that to carry you through to the end. It won't. And then the last illustration from that parable is maybe one of the more complex ones, but interesting ones. You can, I, I can no more borrow some of your oil than I can borrow some of your filling of the Holy Spirit. I can't borrow your love. I can't borrow your zeal. I can't borrow your tenderness or your compassion or your faithfulness. I can't borrow it. That, that's why the, the wise virgins who have a lot of oil, they're not mean. You just can't share that with someone else. So how in this parable do faithful servants represented by those five wise virgins, how do they wait for the bridegroom? Faithful servants bring enough oil. They wait filled with the Holy Spirit and with a lamp that doesn't go out. I'm 63 years old. I don't know how many years I have left. My dad and mom are 87. I come from pretty good genetic stock in that sense. So, so maybe I've got 20 or 30 more years. I don't know. Should I be looking in my oil, in my lamp rather, and say, ah, you know, got an inch and a half in the bottom. I think that'll get me another 30 years. I don't want to think that way. And I don't want you to think that way. Be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit is Paul's command in Ephesians. Just keep giving me oil, God. I don't want to show up for the feast with a little birthday candle worth of light. I want a torch. And I hope you do as well. The sixth of the seventh illustrations now that Jesus gives to the disciples concerns three servants. Each one of them entrusted with varying amount to the master's money. Now I know it says talents. That's a misleading word for us English speakers because what do you hear when you hear the word talent? Well, if I could dance for you, you would know I had no talent. Uh, you, you, you think of violin or singing or dancing or, or even the ability to do um, math and accounting well or whatever it would be, carpentry, that's your talent. It's not what it means in the Bible. In the Bible, it's a, it's a unit of measure. It's a, it's a unit of weight, and you measure money by how many talents. If it's a talent of silver, it is worth about a half a million dollars. So in the parable that we're going to see, one, one guy gets, the guy who gets the least still gets one talent. He gets a half a million dollars. That would mean that the guy who got five talents got two and a half million dollars. If it's a talent of gold, you can multiply that by 10 or 20. Don't know what the exchange rate was back then. Here's the point. It's a lot of money. But I don't know that money is the main point of the parable so much as faithfulness. You have been given resources beyond what you can imagine. Will you be faithful with them? In the parable, the first servant was given five talents, the second one, and the last servant was given, I'm sorry, the second was given two, and the last servant was given one. And it says, each according to their ability. Then it's important. God doesn't overwhelm you with more than you can do. He gives you things according to your ability. 
As with previous illustrations, the master returns after a long time. These, these seven really do hang together. This is a single answer, a single lesson that Jesus is teaching. The master returns after a long time, and he settles accounts with them. And the one that had been given five talents made five more. The one that had been given two made two more. Each of those first two servants had doubled their master's money, and they both received the same commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter in to the joy of your master. It's revealing, isn't it, that the reward for faithful service is more faithful service. You might say, now wait a minute. I just worked really hard. You gave me $5 million, and I worked for 20 years investing that, and, and I made you five more. Can I have a break? No, you get to take the $10 million now and invest that. It would be easy to see this as kind of an abusive boss. You did such a, good on that, such a good job on that project, and thank you for working through the weekend. Here's another one. It's not like that. Jesus is careful to tell us that these are the rewards of a joyful master. Enter into the joy of your master. I've, I've never met the servant. You haven't either. I've never met the one who says, you know, I was entrusted with a little, and God enabled me to invest that, and, and I doubled it. Um, I was able to encourage faith in some people that were already saints. I was used by God to call a couple people to faith that, that were outside the family. Um, I was able to, to, to do some good works and encourage some people, and I just hate it. I'm so tired of this. You've never heard a person say that. Why? Because they don't exist. You invest what God has given you in the kingdom and see an increase, and you will enter into the joy of your master, and that joy is addicting. You won't want to go back. No one says, please, please, God, no more joy, no more well-done, good and faithful servant, no more seeing the kingdom manifest on earth. No more seeing hope in people's eyes. No more knowing that there's more joy in heaven because someone has repented. I'm, I'm just tired of that. Nobody says that unless they're the third servant in the parable. So the one who buried his talent and then dug it up and returned it to the master and listened to his reasoning for why he did what he did. Matthew 25, 24. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. If you see your master as a hard man who just piles on the work, he's not generous, he's not joyful, you're going to have a hard time waiting well for him. You're going to have a hard time investing what he's given you because it will be at times hard in the moment. But if your master is generous, if he's joyful, if you know that you're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, you've been faithful, enter into the joy of your master, um, he'll work. You'll invest. You'll take the talents he has given you in whatever form.
time, for others it will be abilities, for others it will be He will give it to you according to your ability. If your perception of the master is that he's a hard man, you probably won't do much. If your perception is that he's generous and joyful, you'll invest. And that's the sixth point. Faithful servants invest while they wait. The seventh and final illustration of how faithful servants are to await the master's return centers on two types of people. Last parable in Matthew 25. They're represented by sheep and by goats. The sheep are those who in Matthew 25, 34 hear these words from Jesus. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. And the goats are those, a few verses later, verse 41, that hear from Jesus these words. Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. You could not have two more different realities confronting people. So what kind of waiting behavior is associated um, with the sheep? And what's associated with the goats? What's Jesus looking for so that he can make a public declaration in, in righteousness and in truth, that's a sheep and that's a goat? What does he look for? The identifying behaviors for the sheep are found in verses 35 and 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The waiting behavior used to identify the goats is exactly the same, except the word no is inserted at the appropriate place. Verse 42, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. What's interesting, the sheep and the goats all have almost identical replies. When? The sheep say, when did we see you and do this? And the goats say, when did we see you and not do this? But it's clear they both said, we didn't see you. Well, why? Because he hadn't returned yet. He wasn't there to be seen. But Jesus counts compassion, kindness, service to those he calls the least of these my brothers as service to him and love shown to him. So, so how do faithful servants wait? What do they do with their lives when they don't actually see Jesus? He's not on the horizon. Faithful servants show compassion while they wait. Point number seven. In fact, and, and, and this is really important in my estimation. I, I've spent four years teaching Matthew a long time ago, 20 years ago or more. Um, and I've taught this parable on more than one occasion. It wasn't until this week that I saw what I want to point out to you. We, we usually urge faithfulness 
on this parable by saying, look, when you show compassion to a Christian brother or sister, Jesus counts it as compassion shown to him. And so we make it conscious, don't we? He's struggling with it. It's a little costly, a little hard, going to take some time, going to take some money. It's an awkward person, whatever it is. But I'm showing it to Jesus. Okay, I'll do this. That's not a terrible application. That's okay. But that's not actually what's in the parable. Faithful servants. I'm not that guy, so this is hard. Faithful servants so naturally show love and compassion and tenderness and mercy. They don't even know when they're doing it. They don't do it calculating to say, this will please Jesus. This will be counted as though I did it to Jesus. They just do it so that they can say, when did we see you? Now, it's, it's not bad to understand the connection between loving your neighbor and having that counted as love towards Jesus. But what's actually in the parable is a step higher. It's a life so transformed that what you see those sheep doing is just reflexive. It's automatic. It's natural. By contrast, unfaithful servants, the goats in this parable, it's not natural for them. They saw the people in need, but the boss wasn't there. The master wasn't there. There was no connection in their mind between loving those people and, and, and getting in good with the master, so they did nothing. Faithful servants wait with compassion for those in need. So that's seven illustrations. Jesus just bang, 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 bang. He wants them to understand. I am coming. You won't know when. I want you to live a certain way. I want you to wait with certainty. Life might be absolutely normal until suddenly it's not. I am returning. They should wait with genuine faith that is your, their own. They, they know they've been warned and they've heeded the warning. One member of a family will be taken, another will not. They need to wait in a state of preparedness because Jesus is going to come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. I, I grew up when I was in college, the great late, the late great planet Earth was still a hot topic and a hot book. And if you read that book, you could decode it. You could kind of put the rapture chart on your bedroom wall and know when Jesus was coming. I'm a little embarrassed to tell you that. <laughs> you can't know. Not in any useful sense. He will come like a thief in the night. For we need to wait as those who will soon be held accountable and be found serving our fellow servants at the proper time. We need to wait with enough oil. I don't want my flame to flicker and go out. I want it to be bright. I want to be part of that procession that leads the bridegroom into the feast and shed light on it in a beautiful and glorious way that gives him glory because he's the one that supplies the lamp and he's the one that supplies the oil. I want to invest while I wait in the Lord's return. He has given me opportunities, talents, however you want to consider them. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, and so do you. 
do want to have that renewed mind and that, and that firm understanding that a transformed heart sees need and just flows into that need. And yes, I know, I know when I do it, especially to a brother or a sister in Christ, that Jesus counts it as being for him. But I need to be careful because I might just only love you and not love the guy on the street. Why this message? And why today? Very simply, we're in a period of waiting. We're waiting for Jose and Heidi to come. Now, of that day or hour, we have a pretty good idea. We're looking at the second week of July. We're also waiting for God to reveal to us who our next lead pastor is going to be. We don't know when that will be. We've got some interesting candidates. God has not yet said that's the one, so we're still in that process. So now let me ask you a question. How are you going to wait for the next couple of months until Jose gets here, for the next however many months until the new lead pastor gets here? You're going to sit on your hands, bury your talent, lay low. Let's wait till the new guys get here and see what they want from us. Let me tell you, you already have a master, and he's told you what he wants. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to see him as generous and joyful. He wants you to look around with compassion. Some of you might know that Kitty Corner across the street, a couple of hundred yards away, a huge building project is going up. I've been told by more than one source that there's going to be housing there for approximately 3,000 people. This is your Jonah moment, folks. There's going to be 3,000 people living over there, and most of them don't know their left hand from their right. You're going to find a tree to sit under for a little shade and complain about life, or are you going to dream? Are you going to ask God for some more oil? You're going to ask him for new eyes to see and start strategizing what will it look like to reach 3,000 people a quarter mile away. Some of you, have already come up with some really good and creative ideas. Keep them coming, and let's see what God enables us to translate from idea into action. And let's not wait. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for hard teachings in Scripture because we, we didn't really go there very much, but these, these are hard teachings as well. Because for every faithful servant, there's an unfaithful one. For every well-done, good, and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master, there is a depart from me. It's a hard passage. But you didn't give it to us to scold us. You gave it to us that a fire might be lit in our lamp, that eyes might be opened to opportunity, that a zeal might be stirred to really, really want to hear, well done. And so do it. We can't do it in our own strength, but Father God, you can do it in us. And so send your Holy Spirit. We don't want to wait for anything. Just send him. Fill us and send us out. Let Jose come to a church where he can say, what happened? I met you guys two months ago. You weren't like this. Let us be a church that a new lead pastor comes to with joy 